0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 2. That's our passage today, Matthew chapter 2. Here's our key concept this morning. God protects His own. God protects His own. We're looking at the dream reports that are part of Matthew's telling of the Christmas story. Last week we noted that the Magi were warned in a dream not to keep their appointment with King Herod, but to go a different way and to avoid meeting with that evil king. And today we're going to come to the struggle between that weak and fleeting king and the eternal king of the universe, because Jesus, even as a little baby, represents the future. He represents the future, not just for the Jews, but for all people. In him there is hope for the human race. He is the true king, not Herod. But Herod considers himself ultimate. He considers the babies of Bethlehem worthless, expendable, and that's exactly what happens when you no longer consider human life to be sacred. What you're doing is you're sacrificing the future for the sake of the present. And Herod is doing just that in the scene before us today. He's been on the throne in Israel 33 years. And he stayed there by dirty tricks and deception and murder. And knowing that about him, knowing his reputation and his character, we're not going to be surprised about what we see him do next. And as the curtain rises on our passage, the Magi had left the country, they had not kept their appointment with Herod, they were directed in a dream to avoid that, and so they were protected. And so we ask the question that we've asked all throughout the series, as we see these dream reports and the specific guidance that God has given in the dreams, we ask, does this happen today? Does God still direct us in dreams? Certainly He can, should He choose. And I read a report that comes from 2004. October 2nd, 2004. A 17-year-old by the name of Laura Hatch from Seattle did not come home one evening from a party she was, had attended. She was missing for days on end, and of course, during that time, people were praying, people were searching, search teams were formed, kind of following the route that she would have taken uh, from the place where the party was to her home. And many of those searchers, in fact, 200 volunteers from her church were part of the search team. Her church was Creekside, Creekside Covenant Church of Redmond. And one of those who volunteered to do the searching was one of her friends in the youth group of that church by the name of Shah Noor. A week into the search, people were losing hope. But all throughout that week, while the search was going on, Shah Noor was having a recurring dream. And in the recurring dream, she would see a specific portion of the road, a bend in the road nearby. And she would hear a voice say, keep going. That was the dream. It was over and over again. She told her mother about it. And so Sunday, October 10th, They drove that route once again, and she asked her mother to stop at a specific point, pull over to the side of the road, and she started to go into the woods. She climbed over a concrete barrier, and there, 100 feet down a further embankment, she saw the bumper of the 1996 Camry that Laura was driving. Laura was still inside. She was injured. She was dehydrated, but she was alive. And the thing of it was, that's a Sunday. Creekside Community Church, our covenant church, had planned a prayer service for Laura that afternoon, but in the report that she was discovered, it, it, it turned into a celebration and a praise service. Laura wasn't able to attend that service. She was in the hospital, but the church rejoiced because Shah Noor had a dream of rescue. And here's the, this is the kind of dream we encounter today the rescue and the protection of baby Jesus, actually the Christ child by this time. So you follow along. We're going to pick up the reading in in chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 13, and here's what it says. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Herod by now was aware that the Magi were not keeping their appointment with him. Now the Magi didn't exactly know what was in Herod's heart, what Herod would do as a result of that, but God knew In fact, verse 16 says this, When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. The NIV uses the word outwitted. It says that when he learned, he was outwitted. The word there can be translated tricked. But a certain kind of trick, kind of a mocking trickery. That's what Herod thought was happening. And the magi were mocking him, were tricking him. He's so used to be explicitly obeyed, exactly everything he says, that any slight deviation from his exact orders, he takes as a personal insult. And he's furious. And he went into a violent rage. In fact, you could say he went into a blinding rage, Because try to follow the logic with me. From Herod's point of view, he expected the Magi to show up. They didn't show up. And in his thinking, he must have thought if the Magi were smart enough to figure out that they ought not to keep that appointment, that Herod was not on their side and not on the side of the Holy Family, certainly they would have been able to warn the family and cause them to escape. That's logical. But Herod's not being logical here. There's nothing to do with logic. It has everything to do with rage and personal insult. And Herod had grilled the Magi as to the date. When did you see the star? When did it start appearing? No doubt trying to find out the approximate age of the child. And the Magi, when they were asked that question, they had no reason to hold back the information. They had no reason to distrust Herod, and so they were open about the dates. And that put in focus, in the bullseye of Herod's rage, the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town. We're probably talking about less than 30 children. In Herod's mind, less than 30 children is a small price to pay for peace of mind and security on the throne. But we're talking about approximately 30 children being killed. But Joseph had had a dream. It's one of those dreams that wakes you up suddenly and is still with you when you wake. One of those dreams that you still see the sights and you hear the words. And in the dream itself, the angel says, get up, you got to go, there's danger here. And that very night they left for Egypt. Now that must have been quite a step. Joseph is a Jew from Galilee. Mary is a Jew from Galilee. These are country folks, kind of countrified people. Galilee is where the bumpkins lived in this day. It's hard enough, you know, to travel all the way to Bethlehem. And they had just started settling in and getting a small business going in Bethlehem. You see, for reasons that we are not given, Joseph and Mary did not return to Galilee after the census and after the birth. They stayed in Bethlehem. And no doubt, Joseph is trying to get the carpenter shop or the the craftsman shop, we should more accurately translate it. He's trying to get that going. He's trying to get his business started. And now in the middle of the night with no warning, no preparation, they're told, pack up, grab your stuff, and go. Leave it all behind. Now, maybe Joseph was ready for that kind of thing because he's already encountered angels in dreams before. It's due to a previous angelic dream that he was able to wed Mary, and they became husband and wife. And since then, he's seen miracle after miracle, miracle that his virgin wife gives birth to a son, miracle that when that happens, shepherds come from the field to just where they are. And what they do is they worship that child. He's seen magi, scholars, and mystics from a distant land come from a faraway place just to meet the child and give him unheard of gifts. Probably to him they they reported about their own dream and and that they're not going to go back to, to Herod And now here's another night intruded upon by an angel, another night where a dream gives him direction. By now, he's riding the wave of God's miraculous uh, communication to him. And Mary too has encountered an angel already way back when the first announcement came, and you you have found favor with God. So probably this couple by now are on high alert for divine instruction. What's God going to tell us to do next? And when it comes, Even if it's in the form of a dream, they did not doubt it. They did not hesitate. Let's go. God is protecting us once again. Pack up, take off in a matter of hours. There is unhesitating obedience here. And so they leave for Egypt. It's not as shocking as it sounds, even though it's quite a distance. Egypt at this point had a large population of Jews living there. One historian says that Alexandria was one-third of the population of that city was Jewish in these days. So it's likely they have some connections there. They might even have family there that they're going to visit. And every indication in the story is that they get away clean, Herod doesn't suspect, the target is gone. But what we're reminded here is hold on to your plans loosely. See, they had plans. Plans were in place. A new business was starting. A young family was getting underway. They had newfound wealth due to the gifts of the Magi. All of a sudden, things are looking up. These plans look like good plans. But all of a sudden, the expected life had to be put aside, and a new dream had to be followed, and it needed to be obeyed right away without question. And we should be thankful that Joseph was willing to turn on a dime and follow the Lord's lead. I wonder if I would be so willing. Hold on to your plans loosely. We all have plans, and it's good to plan. But pride will cause you to stick to your plan over God's plan, and that's never good. That's where it goes bad. But we're reminded of something else here, too. In the way that Matthew tells us the story, we're reminded that God sees all time, all the time, and He's always working. Because Matthew reaches back to the Old Testament and says this in verse 15, And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, we would never connect this prophecy to the Holy Family if it wasn't for this verse. Matthew sees that the fact that the family will flee to Egypt and then eventually return to Israel as a fulfillment of the verse Hosea 11.1. 1. That's what he's quoting. Now remember, Hosea was a prophet that, that began his prophetic ministry 30 years prior to Isaiah. In other words, he's way back in 785 B.C. saying these words. And in his context, he's seeing the, the nation of Israel rebel against God, turn their backs on the one true God, and as they're doing that, Hosea is reminding them that even though punishment for this is coming, God has rescued you in the past. God has demonstrated his love for you in the past. He's reminding them that they were called out of Egypt, out of slavery, to be that unique nation child of God that, through which he was incubating the Savior eventually. And Matthew says something we wouldn't understand. He says not only was the prophet Hosea looking back to that original exodus and reminding the people of God's love, without understanding it and without knowing it, he's also speaking about his future, about the fact that the literal, only begotten Son of God, born of a virgin, will flee to Egypt and then come out of Egypt. And what Matthew is doing there through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he's making a connection between what God did in Moses and what God is doing in the Messiah. And the parallels of the are there. Both Moses and Jesus are spared death as a child. Just as Pharaoh was seeking to kill the baby boys, so Herod here is seeking to kill the baby boys. The Jews' departure in the night after the Passover is parallel to the family's flight by night. Just as Moses brought freedom to his people in the first Exodus, Jesus will free people from their sins in the greatest Exodus of all. Jesus will be killed as the Passover lamb on Passover weekend either in the year AD 30 or AD 33. Those are the two options. His blood will take the place of the blood over the doorposts of the Passover sacrifice. His blood now as the true Lamb of God, and Jesus will bring eternal spiritual freedom. And the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to see God's pattern, to see the way that all of this was working itself out. God is working all the time, seeing all time, all the time, working his will at just the right time, taking the next step. And even though we might not understand it, even though Hosea didn't really comprehend the full measure of his words, the Holy Spirit did. And he told Matthew, this is again a fulfillment of God's prophecy. So at just the right time, the only begotten Son of God escapes to Egypt. But the babies did die. The slaughter did happen. Infants, toddlers were really killed by the soldiers of Herod. You have to wonder what they were thinking when they were doing that, right? I can imagine some of them were fathers and husbands. But the order was carried out. Matthew describes it this way, verse 18. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Here again, Matthew is weaving together the words of the Old Testament prophets and putting them into his current situation, the situation that's, that he observes as he tells the story of this first Christmas. Here, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 31. And the setting in Isaiah chapter 31 is Isaiah having warned… Excuse me, Jeremiah. I should have said Jeremiah. He's Jeremiah chapter 31. And the setting in Jeremiah is Jeremiah having warned the people of their rebellion is watching the Babylonians come and wage war against the nation and eventually take them captive. And he pictures Rachel weeping as she sees the exiles… Wretched and ragged, led away from their homes into captivity. They've had a brutal war. Many of them have been killed. And Rachel is uniquely associated with Bethlehem because Rachel was buried very near Bethlehem. And so he says, Rachel is weeping as the people of Judah are being carried away, being slaughtered, and eventually go into captivity in Babylon. But why does he mention Ramah? Rama's not Bethlehem. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. Rama is north of Jerusalem. And the reason that is mentioned in the words of Jeremiah and then brought forward in the words of Matthew is that Jeremiah is just picturing exactly what he sees happening in the history of his day. Because not only is Judah being conquered and the cities like Bethlehem being overrun and the captives being led away, Rama is the border city, and it is the place where the captives from the north and the south were brought together for deportation. This was the place where they congregated, and from there they were taken away into Babylon. And so in other words, he sees that the whole nation is sharing this pain. The whole nation is sharing this grief, this weeping in this place of deportation. So Rachel's weeping and Rama's pain connects the entire nation to the tragedy that has happened. The nation is in ruins, and the captives are led away. But here, Matthew says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's happening again. A great tragedy is happening again. And it's not just for one little city. It's not just for a little town. It's for the whole nation. A tyrant is killing babies, and it's a great sadness for our nation. Out of the evil heart of a tyrant, innocent suffer. But I wonder how many of Matthew's original readers would have known to continue in their mind through Jeremiah 31. Because if they continued in their mind through Jeremiah 31, they would have read this. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. As Jeremiah continues, he says, but the picture is going to change. It's not going to be like this forever. Even though now is a time of great sadness and weeping, things are going to get better. Because God has a plan. In fact, I believe that many of Matthew's original readers, so steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, many of them would have remembered what comes next, and it would have given them a sense of hope. Yes, this is a sad day. This is a great tragedy, but it's part of a greater hopeful picture because the child who escaped is the source of hope for all people. And God is going to turn this situation around through the work of that child, that Messiah, Jesus. Everything is working out just as God foretold. The king was born in Bethlehem as Micah prophesied. He has gone to Egypt as Hosea prophesied. Terror and horror has followed as Jeremiah prophesied. But we see hints of a promise that he will bring deliverance as Isaiah prophesies. But in the midst of it all, there is the real sin of real bloodshed. So I ask myself, what should we think about this? What should we think about the eternal destiny of these babies and toddlers who were killed? That's an important question. And it's a very personal question for many of us. It's personal for Sylvia and me. Our first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. And we wondered and we prayed, what's happening to that child? What has occurred in the life of that child? I believe that babies who die are covered by the saving grace of Jesus. They have not yet accountable for the guilt of sin. I'm not saying that babies once conceived do not have an inherited sinful nature. They do. But I believe that until there is a consciously aware choice to sin, the guilt of that sin is not applied. Theologians call this the concept of the age of accountability, when a child becomes accountable for their sinful actions. And when does this happen? Well, it varies, right, from kids to kids. But having raised kids... Maybe it comes earlier than we'd like to think. I remember more than once Sylvia and I turning to each other saying, uh, these kids are little sinners. But here we're talking about toddlers, well before the age of accountability. This view, the age of accountability, is assumed in the Scriptures. It's assumed in the words of King David when his child dies, and he says in 2 Samuel 12, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, that child is alive in glory, and I will see him again, but he's not going to come to me at, in, this, in this life. And so we have that assurance, but it's an assurance in the midst of sadness, isn't it? But ultimately, the plan of God is being worked out, and ultimately God has given a dream of protection and rescue for the Messiah who is that plan. And so what is the application for us looking at these dream reports? What what are we to think about it? First of all this, know that God is watching. None of this was a surprise to God. He saw the naivete of the Magi. He saw the rage of Herod. He saw the danger of the Christ child. He saw the willingness and the readiness of Joseph to once again quickly respond to a dream. God sees it all, and He sees it all in your life as well. Don't ever forget that. And don't forget God is protecting. He protects The Christ child, today the name of Herod is associated mostly with this terrible act. Even though he wanted to be remembered as a builder, he wanted to be remembered as a leader and a good Roman. But none of that is foremost in the mind of history. This is what we remember. We remember Herod as a monster. But God outwits monsters. There are no monsters that God cannot overcome. And thirdly, God has a plan. His plan was long thought out. It was laid out in cryptic prophecies that had meaning in their their day, but had more meaning as the plan unfolded. Because God sees the whole plan. He sees all time, all the time. And He has a plan for us as well. He has a plan for you. And the best thing you can ever experience is the perfect plan of God. So pray for the plan to be accomplished and be flexible enough to pivot toward the plan as it unfolds. Watch God work. Christmas is near. And you know what my favorite part of Christmas is? It might surprise you to know it's not the opening of presents. I'm the guy who gets a little nervous with all that wrapping paper all around the place and kind of get things tidied up along the way. My favorite part of Christmas is I love the build-up. I love the ramp-up. I love the expectation that Christmas brings. I love the atmosphere that just feels like great things are going to happen. And that's what I hope you nurture in these days of Advent. Something great is about to happen, not just a holiday, but something great is about to happen from God in my life, in your life. So hold on to your man-made dreams loosely. Be ready to exchange them for the dream that God will give you, because know this, He's watching, He's protecting, and He has a plan for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we want that plan. Forgive us for the times when we pivot towards our own desires away from Your plan, for the times when we see what the plan might be, but don't move in that direction Lord, forgive our pride and forgive our assumption, but Lord, we want what you want for us. Thank you for the example of the Holy Family, being ready to move at a moment's notice. May we be as flexible and as pliable in your hands, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.